Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then I'd encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Simon Hill. Simon is the CEO and founder of Wazoku, a leading idea management company. He's also the owner of Innocentive, a US-based pioneer in crowdsourced innovation and the world's leading open innovation marketplace. Uh, Simon, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. And as you said, it's a lovely sunny day here. Certainly is. Pleasure welcoming you onto the show, Simon. Um, I think we should probably start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in early June 2021, and we're still, albeit moving out of social restrictions, still somewhat in the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we have been for the best part of 14 months in one way or another. Now, with all of that in mind, looking back over the last year at large, to what extent has all this affected you and your business? Would you say? So, so, so obviously, it, it has been a you know a significant macro in, um, event for for all businesses, not just in the UK but but globally. Um, as a leader of a software company that provides technology that sort of facilitates collaboration and innovation asynchronously and regardless of kind of location in some ways the past sort of year and a half has actually been reasonably positive for us as an organization and that we provide a, a, a tool that's got really good utility for, for a group of companies and employees who've been you know cast into new ways of working and adopting different things but equally on a very human level i've had to deal with you know the leadership challenge that comes from having a company that was used to being you know, a kind of big family and, and all working together in various offices around the world to dealing with um, the challenges of, of remote working, which are not really just about the operational side of that. They're very much about the human side of it as well. So I'm pleased that things are starting to open up again. I'm hopeful that we will continue to move in the direction we all wish to do so because it has certainly been a, you know, a pretty challenging as I said, also, you know, somewhat positive for us as an organization, um, 15 or, or so months. It has been a challenging time, hasn't it? An immensely tragic one for a lot of people as well. But I think a lot of business leaders can come out of this having learned a great deal and almost feeling an awful lot stronger for the challenge as well. Would you say that that's applicable to you and that you have learned quite a lot from this experience? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. You know, I, I, I'm quite a I'm quite a reflective leader. You know, we didn't race into any hasty decisions at the start of this. If I put myself back in the shoes as best as I can, sort of March time last year, you know, there was certainly a quick step back and and a, and a look into the leadership crystal ball we all wish we all had at that time, and and just to work out you know, what we thought the best thing to do was based off of the fact that we had no idea really what was what was happening, right? And I think that one of the most important things from my perspective was to communicate regularly and listen um, openly to the business in terms of my, my direct staff 
but also our customers and to understand what was happening there. You know, it was certainly as the world was cast into um, a sequence of challenges over last year, we sell globally. So I wasn't just dealing with the situation in the UK as it evolved, but, but sort of around the world, trying to support customers, trying to understand what was happening and, and run a business in that um, in that environment, I guess was no different than anybody else's. Like I said, we're lucky we have utility and so we could keep running, we could keep growing. Um, but planning around all of that was, was, was particularly challenging. And given the importance of communication, as you've rightly said there, I suppose that when you're having to do all of that communicating from a distance via technological means, I guess it almost prompts a change in leadership style and approach in some ways as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, um, you know, as I said, we, as a, you know, as the founder of a, of a company, and let's not forget, as you mentioned in your introduction, we also acquired a business last year as well, you know, quite unusually in the middle of a pandemic, obviously not planned as such, but, but I'm very, you know, I'm very pleased that we did still manage to achieve that. Um, it certainly makes things challenging. You know, we bought a company in the US. I've not managed to get over to the US you know, since that acquisition was done. And in fact, for several months before it as well, in normal times, You'd be on the ground. You'd be working with the uh, with the new, with the new business and, um, and and really dealing kind of hand hand in hand with um, with that business as it's grown. So it has been not without its challenges. However, as a technology company, again, I think you know, we're we're very we're very lucky. I think globally, we're very lucky that we have much better technology today than you know even if this had happened five years ago or so. And so the ability you know to to adapt that. To you know, find creative ways, video conferencing, uh, regular sort of stand-ups with the team, and I think over communicating as much as we possibly can has been a focus of ours for for as much of this as we possibly can. I think being creative with that as well. You know, we you can't just keep doing the same thing every week because human nature is to start to tune out from that. So keeping it as fresh as we can and keeping people as you know as aligned to the you know the kind of core messaging, the direction particularly over the long winter months we've just had here in the UK as well, mm. which were which were really tricky. You know, lockdown for short, short, dark, wet, miserable days has certainly impacted on the, the human psyche and the, and the kind of mental health and mental well-being of, of a lot of people, I think. And when you're in sort of a leadership position, is it sort of quite a challenge keeping on top of mental well-being when you're all working from a distance among your workforce? I think it's, it's harder because you don't have that immediate read. Of people, you know, I think we we try and encourage people, even in the video conferencing world, to have their cameras on. We check in with people. We've done a lot of training and and uh, and spent time with all the people managers in the business to try and really ensure that we are close to this. But you know, I'm sure there's many things we've not got right as well. We we invested heavily in support services, so kind of mental health services and other things for the team who may not feel comfortable coming to line managers or to the, the people and talent part of our business, but we just want independent support. Um, so we kind of ramped all of that up and we extended all of our policies, things like sick and stuff. So if anybody wasn't sure or felt unwell, they didn't feel like they, they had to keep working, right? They could take some time off without being impacted from a salary perspective. So we tried to do all the right things, but it's certainly harder in a world where, you know, you could sort of, um, metaphorically put your arm around someone when you could see them face to face every day if you could see things were, were, were tougher for them versus now um, 
not least because in the hybrid world, we've also told people you don't need to stay in a small, expensive flat in London if you want to go work remotely, wherever that might be. We're completely supportive of it. So people are even more dispersed as a as a result of that policy, which I think is the right one, but still mm-hmm. adds complexity. Yeah, absolutely right. I can certainly see where you're coming from, giving people that flexibility and helping with that work-life balance. And I think it's important to recognise as well that this is just as important for those at the top of businesses, isn't it? CEOs and business executives themselves. And here within our organisation, the Leaders' Council in recent weeks, we've spoken an awful lot about the impacts of CEO burnout and stress and things like that. And I think it's important to remember that when you are sort of sucked into survival mode during a time like this and you're well into that hectic world of running a business and looking after everybody else within your workforce, you don't maybe set enough time aside to kind of look after yourself, do you? And so as a business leader, you still need to be able to have that time to step back yourself and recharge the batteries as and when you need to. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I've I've probably been as guilty of that as, as anyone else over the last 12 months. As I said, we, we, um, you know, as a founder, I think you feel a very, very strong responsibility for the business, perhaps more than, than, than if you were, you know, just a CEO, I, I, that may be a contentious statement, but, it, but I certainly, certainly feel it close to my heart that this is not just, you know, a job for me. It, it, it's much more than that. Um, and on top of that, you know, as I said, we acquired a business last year. And so, I've probably never worked harder or longer hours than I did over the last 12 months for a whole variety of, of reasons, some pandemic related, others, you know, related to other reasons to do with the business. And um, on top of that, you can't, you can't, you couldn't take easily take a, a break. Right. And I'm, I'm also in the position that I'm sure many of your listeners are that I have a very young family. We were impacted on that side as well. And so juggling all of that complexity of, of business and and young family life and schooling and other things made last year extraordinarily challenging for a whole host of different reasons. Um, I try to find that time, right? So one of the things I did, which I would never normally do, um, is set myself a a goal of of sort of non-business stuff at the start of the year, so kind of New Year's Mm -hmm. resolution, a bit cliche, but I've actually stuck to it this year, which is just to make sure that I'm getting personal time out. So I put reading time in every day, I do physical exercise every single day and, and just make sure that you're kind of clearing your head a little bit, even if it's just finding half an hour or 45 minutes to, to do that has been really actually quite important for me and just trying to help find the, the headspace and the downtime space that you, um, that you need to give yourself because yeah, you're completely right. It was, it was physically and mentally exhausting and very challenging and it can be really lonely. I think at the top of organizations in that, mm. in that scenario, particularly. It can be. And I suppose what sort of helped make those sort of nights trying to get to sleep less sleepless, I suppose, is the fact that you are working in software, you're working within technology, and there have been a great many opportunities for business during this time in that particular market. And I think being well placed in that sense holds the business in good stead going forward, doesn't it? Because even though we're maybe moving out of social restrictions now, it seems as if technology is going to be playing more of an active role in our daily lives and flexible working practices could well be the status quo moving forward. Well, well let's, hope, let's hope so, right? I think you know, certainly from my perspective, I have a strong vested interest in that, but also fundamentally believe it's the right direction of travel. Um, I'd also say that you know, we work, we're an innovation company. And so 
We help you know to solve complex challenges for businesses, and as a result of that, over the last twelve months, we've actually worked on a number of um, business innovation challenges that have helped. Um, you know, we've worked on COVID challenges. We currently are running a you know a, a challenge around um, single dose vaccine, um, and we we ran one for face masks early on in the pandemic. And so I think we've you know we've been able to apply our skills and our technology to help solve some of the you know, very real world challenges we've had over the last 12 months alongside the kind of you know, myriad of other um, uh, day-to-day projects we, we might be running. And I think that's been obviously you know, great for the world at large, but also for my team in particular to see that the work we do is you know, meaningful and impactful right at the point that the world needs it. And that's, you know, that's been extremely great for us as an organisation. Certainly does seem like exciting times for Wazoku by and large. And moving forward out of the pandemic now, just before we do wrap things up, because I'm conscious that we are starting to run short of time, Simon. Um, if we think about the next year, albeit we don't have a crystal ball in front of us, um, where is it ideally that you would like the business to be this time in 2022? And what are you hoping to achieve as hopefully we leave these social restrictions behind for good? So, so I think yeah, I come out of this 12 months really quite positive you know with a lot of you know you've got to look back and and there's a lot to reflect on there's been a lot of really really tough times but i think that um as a society globally there's a lot to be optimistic about you know i think that we will see key topics like innovation and sustainability come to the fore um, i think we will see digital embraced even more which will support more hybrid ways of working lots of those things are you know are trends that we invested in over the last five to 10 years as an organization, um, you know, things are moving in the direction that we had hoped they did, that they would and probably accelerated by it. So from a business perspective, I'm extremely optimistic. Right? We continue to grow very strongly. Uh, we have some great roles out, uh, out there for, for people who are, you know, who are interested in the types of things that we, that we do and, and in the UK and globally as well. From a leadership perspective, um, I think, you know, we've made the decision that we will uh, continue to work flexibly and continue to work in a hybrid model. That means we have some offices in some places and not in other places, and that people are much more free to work from where where helps them as long as they can get the work done, right? And so I think that, you know, that's giving us a, an access to a greater talent pool than perhaps we would have um, we would have had before across the UK and beyond um, as well. So all in all, I think, you know, it's a slightly... Uh, tricky time right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in the air as we start to emerge out of um, not just COVID, quite frankly, but other the other complexities of, of a kind of post-Brexit world and everything else as well. Mm. But I feel really optimistic about what will happen the other side of um, of this. I'm hopeful that we will actually continue towards you know a full full easing of lockdown restrictions. I have my fingers firmly crossed on on, on that side of things. But you know, all in all, I think that you know the sunshine and the light is, is is kind of guiding us towards a happier next twelve months. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it certainly does sound as if better times are coming. I think that's very right, Simon. And uh, thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show today on what is a bright day. Hopefully bodes well for the future. And I think it would be great even in the coming months once we get more of an idea as to what's going to happen to even maybe catch up and have you back on the show because it's been a real eye-opener and a really fascinating experience welcoming you onto the programme today. Pleasure. I'm really nice to talk to you and all the best to everybody. Likewise, Simon, and do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not quite out of it yet, but better times are coming for sure.
it was a pleasure welcoming Simon Hill, CEO and founder of Wazoku, onto the programme today. And coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and the former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be talking about his take on the last 14 months and his hopes for the months to come. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what their 
delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up and they've shown local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and um, 
and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, 
the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm-hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.